Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide. It's been about 18 months since Proposition 47 passed, and in that time, appellate courts have been trying to divine answers to the numerous legal issues that have cropped up in interpreting the language of the initiative. There have been close to 70 published appellate opinions, many of which have been taken up for review by the California Supreme Court, and hundreds of unpublished opinions. New cases are issuing every day. We're gonna use this first podcast in our series on Proposition 47 to discuss some of the outstanding issues those cases have addressed when it comes to two of the new statutes enacted by Prop 47, Penal Code Section 459.5 and 490.2. This podcast has been approved for 35 minutes of MCLE General Credit. with the Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office to join me, Deputy District Attorneys Dana Deason and Eunice Yang. Eunice had, until recently, been assigned to handle all the Prop 47 hearings in this county. Dana has been assigned to handle all the tricky legal issues arising in implementing Proposition 47. Thank you both for helping out. Of course. Dana, for those prosecutors who've been sleeping under a tree for the past 18 months, what, in a nutshell, did Proposition 47 do? The essential parts of Proposition 47 are as follows. It requires a misdemeanor sentence instead of a felony sentence for certain drug possession offenses, for the offenses of theft, receiving stolen property, and forging or writing bad checks, when the amount involved is $950 or less. However, it does allow a felony sentence pursuant to 1170H for those crimes if the defendant has a super strike which is a prior conviction listed under Penal Code Section 667E2C4, or a prior conviction for an offense requiring sex offender registration under Section 290C. For those otherwise eligible defendants, meaning no 290 registration or no super strike, if they're serving a sentence for a Prop 47 crime, it requires resentencing unless the trial court finds an unreasonable risk to public safety. For those with a completed sentence, it allows redesignation for those Prop 47 crimes. All right, there is going to be some structure to how, to, how we proceed on this uh, podcast. So let's start off with the issues that have arisen surrounding this new offense of shoplifting, first created by Prop 47. Eunice, before we start discussing the issues, what is this new offense of shoplifting? Prop 47 enacted a new penal code section, section 459.5. Although it is called shoplifting, it is somewhat different than what the layperson may think of as shoplifting. It's a hybrid of a commercial burglary and a petty theft. What actually are the specific elements of the crime? There are three elements to the crime. There must be an entry into a commercial establishment. The establishment must be open during regular business hours at the time of entry and the entry must be made with the intent to commit larceny of property valued at $950 or less. All other kinds of entries with the intent to commit theft or some other felony are burglaries. Okay, so what is the punishment for shoplifting? It is a misdemeanor offense unless the prosecution proves the value of the item stolen exceeds $950 or the person charged with the offense 
has one or more super strikes. That is a prior conviction for certain designated offenses, including various sexual offenses, including violence, child molestation, homicides, and any serious and or violent felony offense punishable in California by life, imprisonment, or death. That's not a comprehensive list, but it does not include every serious or violent felony crime that would be a strike for purposes of a three strikes law. That's why the ones listed are called super strikes. Even the appellate courts call them that. If the defendant has a super strike, the new offense of shoplifting can be prosecuted as a felony. So if we wanna just charge the defendant who fits the criteria with a straight burglary instead of shoplifting, can we do that? No, any act of shoplifting must be charged as shoplifting. No person who is charged with shoplifting may also be charged with burglary or theft of the same property. Eunice, you mentioned that the crime of shoplifting requires that a defendant enter a commercial establishment. Does the statute define what a commercial establishment is? No, and that is what brings us to the first of our new cases. Is, is there a new case out there defining commercial establishment? Yes, in Ray J.L. In J.L., a juvenile court found a minor had committed burglary in violation of Penal Code Section 459 based on the minor entering a school locker room and stealing another student's cell phone out of a school locker. After Proposition 47 passed, the minor petitioned to change his juvenile felony burglary offense to a misdemeanor shoplifting offense under newly acted Section 459.5. Okay, now we're gonna be talking in a separate podcast, a little bit down the road, about these Prop 47 petitions to reduce prior convictions for offenses that were covered by the initiative to misdemeanor convictions. But suffice to say that when we're talking about how a commercial establishment is defined, that definition doesn't change whether a defendant is seeking to reduce his prior felony conviction to a misdemeanor or whether the question is what the defendant can or must be charged with going forward. In any event, did the appellate court find that the school was a commercial establishment? No, the minor tried to argue that a public school fit the bill because it shared similar traits with a commercial establishment, such as maintaining regular hours of operation, being closed regular days and hours, engaging with members of the public, and conducting normal functions associated with most businesses, like maintaining personnel, handling payroll, accounting, accepting phone calls, dealing with inventory, etc. But the appellate court said that whatever the term might mean, in a different context, the minor's theft of a cell phone from a school locker room was not a theft from a commercial establishment. Did this court give us a definition of commercial establishment? Well, it qualified its definition a bit, but did say that giving the term its common sense meaning, a commercial establishment is one that is primarily engaged in commerce. That is, the buying and selling of goods or services. The court also concluded that the term shoplifting is commonly understood as theft of merchandise from a store or business that sells goods to the public, and that is how the voters would have understood the crime to be. Since a public high school is not an establishment primarily engaged in the sale of goods and services, but an establishment dedicated to the education of students, the minor's act of entering a school locker room to steal from a locker did not qualify as shoplifting under section 459.5. So the fact 
that the school shared similar traits with a commercial establishment, like the minor was claiming, didn't make a difference? No, the court said that was immaterial. All right, any other cases are out there uh, that are trying to define commercial establishment? Yeah, there are a couple of cases out there assuming that a bank qualifies as a commercial establishment. One of those cases was People versus Vargas, an appellate case that issued last month. In Vargas, the court stated that nothing in Proposition 47 suggests the voters intended the term commercial establishment to only mean retail establishment. And in a case from a few months back called People versus Acosta, the court rejected defendant's argument that his attempted auto burglary was covered by section 459.5. The Costa court stated that section 459.5 makes reference to no other type of burglary and it provides no reason to believe that burglary of a locked motor vehicle is now a misdemeanor when the loss does not exceed $950. I should mention that the issue of whether section 1170.18 implicitly applies to any second de degree burglary involving property valued at $950 or less is pending before the California Supreme Court in a case called People versus Gonzalez. Eunice, one of the more hotly disputed issues concerning the scope of section 459.5 is whether an entry and theft from an area of a commercial establishment that is not being used for commercial purposes like a bathroom or a break room can be shoplifted. The inverse question can arise when the primary purpose of the building entered is not commerce, but some commerce does take place inside the building, like where a hospital houses a cafeteria or a, good or, or a gift shop. Has any published decision provided guidance on either of those questions? Well, in the case we were discussing earlier, JL, the court noted, and I'm quoting here, except for perhaps a school cafeteria or bookstore, a public school is not engaged in the business of selling merchandise or goods at all. You can spin that statement into two ways. You could view it as indicating that the focus in determining what is a commercial establishment is on the primary purpose of the establishment, regardless of whether some portion of the establishment is used for commercial purposes. Alternatively, it could be viewed as suggesting that entry and theft from the cafeteria or bookstore in a school might qualify as shoplifting. Any other case out there? There's a little tidbit in the other case that I mentioned earlier, Vargas, which held section 459.5 applied to an entry into a bank to cash a forged check worth less than $950. The people had argued that such a holding would broadly expand the definition of shoplifting to situations where a person enters a restaurant and sneaks into the manager's office to steal $900 from a safe, or where a person enters a 24-hour supermarket and breaks into a locked pharmacy to steal drugs, or where a person enters a locker room of a private club, steals personal items from the lockers. The Vargas court responded by noting that none of those situations was before them but then went on to say, we also doubt those acts would fall within our reading of section 459.5. For instance, private areas of commercial establishments may not qualify as an establishment open during regular business hours as required by section 459.5. So we have a little guidance that can suffice as a seed for an argument, if not a fully flowered argument. Right, Eunice, I just want to take this time to 
to let our listeners know that if they have the issue of how to define a commercial establishment, you have written a, an invaluable brief on the issue, which we can make available upon request. And speaking of things available upon request, there were several other issues arising from the enactment of this new kind of shoplifting. Uh, during the podcast, we're just going to hit those that have been directly or indirectly addressed by the new cases. The other issues and discussions of the issues, uh, however, are going to be included in the IPG memo that accompanies this podcast. Okay, Eunice, let me give you a bit of a break and ask a few questions of you, Dana. As mentioned earlier, Section 459.5 has several elements. One is that entry must be into a commercial establishment, but another element is that the entry must have been made with the intent to commit larceny of property valued at $950 or less. Does entry into a commercial establishment with the intent to cash a forged check, pretty common crime, count as entry with the intent to commit larceny? Well, that is one of the two issues the California Supreme Court took up in the case of People v. Gonzalez from 2015. The other issue is the one Eunice mentioned earlier, whether Section 1170.18 impliedly includes any second-degree burglary involving property valued at $950 or less. So what's the holding of, or what was the holding before it was taken out, of the Gonzales Appellate Court on that first issue? Well, the Court of Appeal held that a defendant who entered a bank and cashed two forged checks totaling $250 did not qualify as shoplifting under Section 459.5. But what was their reason? Well, they relied on a California Supreme Court case from 2013 called People v. Williams. The Gonzales Court stated that 459.5 requires the intent to commit larceny, and larceny requires a trespassory taking, which is a taking without the property owner's consent. Since the Bank of America consented to transferring title and possession to $250 to the defendant, the target crime was not larceny. Have there been any other cases recent cases coming to the same conclusion? No, but there have been a couple of new cases disagreeing with the holding in Gonzales. In the case of People v. Vargas from 2016, the trial court denied a defendant's request to reduce her second-degree burglary conviction to a misdemeanor where the conviction was based on her entry into a check-casting establishment with the intent to use a forged check for $148. The trial court believed section 459.5 did not apply because the defendant did not commit what the court commonly understood as shoplifting, which is the entry into a retail establishment to steal displayed merchandise. The appellate court, however, disagreed with the trial court, finding defendant's entry into the check cashing establishment with the intent to commit theft by false pretenses met the requirements of section 459.5 and qualified her for resentencing. They rejected the people's argument that section 459.5 is limited to unauthorized entry into a retail establishment while the establishment is open during regular business hours with the intent to steal openly displayed merchandise valuing valuing, not more than $950. They also rejected the people's argument based on People v. Gonzalez that the intent to commit larceny element in section 459.5 cannot be satisfied by entering a commercial establishment with the intent to commit theft by false pretenses. The Vargas court concluded the phrase intent to commit larceny included 
the intent to commit theft by false pretenses. Because Penal Code Section 490A says larceny is theft, and theft is defined in Section 484 as including theft by false pretenses. What about the argument in Vargas that the California Supreme Court in People versus Williams held that larceny doesn't include theft by false pretenses? The Vargas Court was also persuaded its interpretation was consistent with the general intent behind Proposition 47, which was to focus spending on violent and serious offenses and require misdemeanors instead of felonies for non-serious, non-violent crimes such as the defendant's conduct, which was non-violent and non-serious. After all, don't forget Prop 47 also reduced the offense of forgery involving less than $950 from a wobbler to a straight misdemeanor. In other words, had the defendant been charged just with passing the forged check, there'd be no question it would be a misdemeanor. A similar result based on similar reasoning was reached by another recent case called People v. Triplett. Dana, did the prosecutors in Triplett attempt to argue that because the defendant entered the businesses to cash checks belonging to another person, the burglaries were essentially accompanied by a felony identity theft intent or a forgery intent and not an intent to commit larceny? They did, but that argument was rejected. The Triplett Court reasoned that larceny is theft and theft is defined very broadly to include knowingly and designedly by any false or fraudulent representation or pretense defraud any other person of money, which would encompass fraudulent presentation of a check belonging to someone else to obtain money. All right, then. Let's move on to some issues relating to another new section of the Penal Code created by Proposition 47. Penal Code Section 490.2. Dana, what does that statute say, and what impact does it have on crimes involving theft? Well, Jeff, Prop 47 redefined grand theft. It did not change the language of Penal Code Section 487, which defines what constitutes grand theft for a variety of crimes. But it did add a new section, Penal Code Section 490.2, that imposes a $950 threshold for crimes defined as grand theft that previously had no threshold or a lesser threshold. The old rules still apply, though, if the theft is committed by defendants with convictions for super strikes or if they're registered sex offenders. Are all statutes that define grand theft subject to Penal Code Section 490.2? Well, that has been the object of some litigation. Certain crimes defined as grand theft, for example, Penal Code Section 484ED, which prohibits the acquisition or retention of access card information, does not fit neatly into the definition of theft. Cases are split on whether Section 490.2 governs violations of Section 484ED. Dana, 484ED, that's the section that prohibits possession of someone else's credit card or ATM card or information from that card, right? Yes. Specifically, Section 484ED provides that every person who acquires or retains possession of access card account information with respect to an access card validly issued to another person without the cardholder's or issuer's consent with the intent to use it fraudulently is guilty of grand theft. Okay, well, it says right in the statute that a violation of that section is grand theft. So why doesn't 490.2 apply if the access card or the access card information is worth less than $950? 
Well, several cases have answered that question, but they've provided different answers. So let's look at three of these cases, People v. Kwan, People v. Grayson, and People v. King. They've held that the limitation on charging grand theft for property valued under $950 does not apply to Section 484ED. Two of those cases, though, or two of the other cases, People v. Romanowski and People v. Thompson, have held that it does apply. The California Supreme Court is going to decide the issue. They've taken up Kwan, Grayson, and Romanowski. Well, Dana, while that issue is being decided, we still need to figure out whether to charge possession of access card information under 44ED as grand theft or petty theft. So, Dana, what should prosecutors do? What should we do? I think uh, the best advice I could do or give is to give you the best arguments for why 490.2 applies and why it doesn't apply. Whichever set of arguments you think the California Supreme Court is going to adopt should guide your decision in whether to charge felony or misdemeanor violations, and whether you're gonna oppose petitions to reduce prior felony convictions for 484ED to misdemeanors. Okay, but in order to figure this all out, don't I first need to know how much the access card information is worth? Well, funny you should ask that question that's actually one of the primary reasons courts have held that 484ED is not subject to 490.2. Those courts have pointed out that the difficulty in trying to assess the value of such information is a reason to find that section 490.2 only applies to grand theft where the loss to the victim can be quantified. The value of an access card or access card information cannot be quantified. So in support of this position, the court explained that while section 490.2 purports to apply to all provisions defining grand theft, it mentions only section 487. Section 490.2 and 487 are similar in that they refer specifically to the value of money, labor, or real or personal property obtained by theft. And in other words, both of those statutes presume a loss to the victim that can be quantified to assess whether the value of the money, labor, or property taken exceeds that $950 threshold. But section 484ED does not contemplate such a loss. The theft of intangible access card account information presents a qualitatively different personal violation than theft of more tangible items. All right, well that sounds like a pretty reasonable argument. How do the cases finding it does apply, section 490.2 does apply to 44ED, respond to that argument? They say it's up to the electorate or legislature to decide which crimes are grand theft, and it has done so in section 484ED. They point to language in section 490.2 explicitly stating it applies notwithstanding section 487, pardon me, or any other provision of law defining grand theft. The plain meaning of this introductory clause in section 490.2a was intended to apply to all grand theft provisions and not just section 487 provisions. They say that the distinction between value-based and non-value-based versions of grand theft is false since even some versions of grand theft specifically defined in section 487 are not value-based. For example, grand theft auto or grand theft firearm or grand theft from a person. They also point to language in the ballot pamphlet of Proposition 47 that states that crimes 
will no longer be charged as grand theft solely because of the type of property involved. This is inconsistent with treating acquiring or retaining access card information as not being subject to Section 490.2. They also say this claim dichotomy between tangible and intangible property is false. Access cards and access card information, they claim, are personal property just like goods. Section 7 of the Penal Code defines things in action and evidences of debt as personal property. The access card itself is tangible personal property, and under the definition of personal property in Black's Law Dictionary, even intangible access card information without the access card would fall within the definition of personal property. What other arguments have been made by the courts finding Section 490.2 does not apply to Section 44.2? These courts have found that possession of access card account information with fraudulent intent under Section 484ED was distinguishable from other theft crimes because of the significant risk of identity theft and loss to the victim. The idea is that Prop 47 provides no authority to suggest the electorate intended to undercut the broad consumer protection purpose behind Section 484ED by valuing such a risk at $950 or less. And how did the courts find that Section 490.2 does apply to 484ED respond to that point? Well, they say if the intent behind Prop 47 were to exclude offenses under Section 484ED, Section 490.2, would have been written so its introductory language was more narrow or included specific exceptions. Moreover, there is evidence that Prop 47 did contemplate the risk of identity theft crimes being accounted for. For example, Prop 47 also amended Section 473, which is check forgery, making it a misdemeanor where the value of the check does not exceed $950. Checks contain the same type of account information that is found on an access card, as well as the owner's address. Thus, a person in possession of another person's check is likely to have access to the same identifying information as a person who acquires and retains access card account information. Yet, Section 473 explicitly states that the changes effectuated by Prop 47 apply unless the defendant is convicted both of forgery and of identity theft as defined in Section 530.5. The check forgery provision indicates that the risk of identity theft is not sufficient to block Prop 47 relief. Rather, it's only when a defendant has actually been convicted of identity theft that check forgery would not be reclassified as a misdemeanor. Furthermore, the identity theft provisions under Section 530.5 can be charged as either a misdemeanor or a felony so the intent to protect consumers against identity theft crimes is not synonymous with a felony charge. Are there any other arguments made in favor of finding that Section 490.2 does not apply to 484ED? Yes, in at least one of the cases finding it does not apply, the Court of Appeals said that Section 484ED is the more specific statute than Section 490.2, and to the extent they are inconsistent, the more specific rules should apply. Oh, I wouldn't say that's the strongest of arguments, but what a court saying Section 490.2 does apply to 484ED say in response to that argument? They say that the rule of statutory interpretation that should actually apply is not the rule. 
that the more specific statute controls over the general. But the rule that a statute dealing with a narrow, precise, and specific subject is not submerged by a later enacted statute covering the general spectrum, unless the latter statute expressly contradicts the original act, or unless that construction is absolutely necessary in order that all of the words of the latter statute have any meaning at all. So these courts point out that each of these exceptions applies in this case. The latter statute here is section 490.2, and it explicitly sweeps all earlier grand theft provisions into its application by reclassifying them as petty theft unless the value of the property taken exceeds $950. And the plain meaning of the statutory language, meaning that notwithstanding section 487 or any other provision of law defining grand theft, it would be meaningless if it did not apply to all specific grand theft provisions. All right. Any more arguments for or against application of section 490.2 to the acquisition or retention of access card information in violation of 484 ED? I can give you just one more. Courts finding section 484 ED is not covered by Prop 47 point out that section 484 ED is not a pure theft crime because the essence of the violation is the acquisition or retention of access card information with fraudulent intent. And section 490.2 does not incorporate the acquisition or retention language, nor does it specifically uh, refer to section 484 ED or any statute regarding access cards. In response, courts finding Prop 47 does apply to section 484 ED return to their argument of the plain language of the statute, which they say dictates that the acquisition and retention of access card account information with an intent to defraud is grand theft, regardless of the so-called essence of section 484 ED. Okay, so let's say you as a prosecutor decide that section 44 ED is potentially subject to section 490.2. You now have a defendant who's found in possession of four access cards. How do we go about assessing the value of that access card information? Well, one of the cases finding section 490.2 applies to acquisition of access card information in violation of 484 ED was People v. Romanowski, a case now taken up by the California Supreme Court. And they suggested that the value can be based on the value of the access account information if it were fenced on the black market. However, People v. Thompson, the other case finding 490.2 applies, says that is impractical. They say the value of the access card itself is slight, as is the value of the access card information. Thus, it will always come in under $950 and always be a misdemeanor. So the Thompson court was not troubled by this conclusion because a felony can still be obtained pursuant to Penal Code Section 484G if the information is ever used and the value of the property acquired through use of that card account information exceeds $950 in a six-month period or if the defendant takes an access card or access card information and uses it to purchase property that exceeds $950, then he can be punished for grand theft under section 484G. All right, Dana. I think we've ridden this issue into the ground. Agreed. But 
before we go, I'd like to ask Eunice another question. Does Section 490.2 cover burglaries in violation of Penal Code Section 459 when the property taken during the burglary is less than $950? So far, no. In People versus Acosta, the defendant tried to argue that 490.2 applied to attempted car burglary in violation of Penal Code Section 459. The Acosta court pointed out that 490.2 only applies to thefts and the burglary of a motor vehicle is not a form of theft as theft is not an element of the offense. Moreover, as opposed to the crime of theft, the crime of burglary can be committed without an actual taking. So let me get this straight. If I steal a car worth less than $950, I can't be punished as a felon. But if all I do is enter the car with the intent to steal something inside and don't, I can be punished as a felon. Doesn't this violate the Equal Protection Clause? No, and don't sound so surprised. In Acosta, the defendant made that very argument and said the disparity in treatment could not be justified, especially when strict scrutiny is applied to this disparate treatment. But the Acosta court said the strict scrutiny standard does not apply because a defendant does not have a fundamental interest in a specific term of imprisonment or in the designation of a particular crime he receives. And under the applicable rational basis test, defendant's equal protection claim fails because the legislator is afforded considerable latitude in defining and setting the consequences of criminal offenses. The electorate could rationally extend misdemeanor punishment to some nonviolent offenses, but not to others as a means of testing whether Proposition 47 has a positive or negative impact on the criminal justice system. A state, you know, does not have to choose between attacking every aspect of a problem or not attacking the problem at all. It may choose to proceed in an incremental and uneven manner. Moreover, as a practical matter, defendant's argument assumes an unlikely disparity in treatment. To the extent some number of vehicle thefts may be treated as misdemeanors, while car burglaries or attempted car burglaries are subject to felony punishment, the electorate could rationally conclude that car burglary should be treated more harshly because entry must be made into a locked vehicle, an element not required of vehicle theft. And finally, because attempted car burglary is an alternate felony slash misdemeanor, in cases involving a loss less than $950, the electorate could reasonably expect that prosecutorial discretion will often result in prosecution as a misdemeanor rather than a felony. These reasons, individually and collectively, provide a rational basis for treating attempted car burglary differently than vehicle theft. Dana and Eunice, thanks very much for joining me for this uh, edition of IPG. Hopefully you can come back for the next edition. Thanks, Thanks Jeff. Jeff.